Our guest today is Yaniv Altschuler. Yaniv's career has been dedicated to the research and development of artificial intelligence. Yaniv earned his PhD in computer science at the Technion in Israel, then completed a postdoc at MIT. Yaniv has published three books on the theory and applications of artificial intelligence, as well as over 70 scientific papers and 17 patents. Yaniv has founded multiple companies. In 2007, he co-founded Memorays, a startup company in the field of behavior analysis in computer games. In 2014, he co-founded Endor, an MIT spin-off financially backed by Eric Schmidt that offers analytics to help understand, predict, and influence the dynamics of human behavior. In 2022, Yaniv founded MetaAI, a company that helps dairy and cattle farmers produce high-quality food in more efficient and sustainable ways. The company uses artificial intelligence to improve cows' digestion, preventing them from burping too much. By the way, I'm proud to say that AI Ventures is an investor in Meta AI. Yaniv, so great to have you here with us. Welcome to the show. Excited to be here. Well, so glad to have you on. But before diving into today's conversation, I'd like to quickly thank our podcast sponsors, Index Ventures and Wits and Biases. Index Ventures is a venture capital firm that invests in exceptional entrepreneurs across all stages, from seed to IPO. With offices in San Francisco, New York, and London, the firm backs founders across a variety of verticals, including AI, SaaS, fintech, security, gaming, and consumer. On a personal note, Index is an investor in Covariant, and I couldn't recommend them any higher. Weights and Biases is an ML ops platform that helps you train better models faster with experiment tracking, model and dataset versioning, and model management. They are used by OpenAI, NVIDIA, and almost every lab releasing a large model. In fact, many, if not all, of my students at Berkeley and colleagues at Covariant are big users of Weights and Biases. Yaniv, well, you're doing quite the thing here. Meta AI focuses on improving the diet of cows, and as I understand it, to reduce their burps. Why? Yeah, so uh, many people don't know it, but uh, cows burp a lot. They just do. (laughs) And uh, when they do, they release a lot of energy in the form of methane. And this energy, when it leaves the cow, uh, it could have been used by it to produce more milk. And just uh, talking in numbers, we're talking about an annual 20 billion worth of additional yield that the global dairy farmers could have enjoyed from if this energy stayed inside the cow. So not only do we have this potential um, 20 billion that we lose because of this wasted energy, but this methane that is being emitted is also one of the largest sources of carbon emission to the atmosphere. You can think about it as driving a car with a hole in its fuel tank. Uh, Not good for the car, not good for your wallet, and not good for the environment. So basically, the alignments, the the incentives are aligned here to stop this uh, waste of energy. I like this analogy you make here to a leaky gas tank in in a car. You're wasting energy that the cows have inside them that they're not putting to good use 
$20 billion. It's amazing. You said a substantial fraction of carbon emissions. Can you put a number on that? Yeah, there is actually a fascinating uh, McKinsey report saying that if you treat all the cows as a country, it would rank as the second most polluting country. So th there would be China, Cowland, US, Russia, and then all the rest. It's around 18% of uh, carbon emission, more than cars. By the way, this is, this is why I got into this uh, field a couple of years ago. I decided to focus on, on, on a big problem, something important, something that I would be passionate about. And I, I noticed that many people are worried about plastic uh, strains or uh, fossil fuel for cars. But uh, in reality, the big problem is this uh, wasted energy in cow burps. And specifically here, you can help everyone. You can create value for the entire uh, value chain, as we'll, uh, I'm sure, uh, discuss uh, soon when we dig uh, deeper into it. Well, as I understand that the 20 billion you're referring to, by the way, is gains purely from higher economic efficiency, still not accounting for potentially saving on carbon taxation or earning carbon credits. It's just purely more efficient farming. Is that right? Exactly. And not only do farmers create more uh, milk, or uh, if we're talking about beef farmers, then heavier uh, cows at lower cost, namely at higher efficiency, but also the milk quality improves. The fat content increases, the protein composition improves, there is less inflammation in the cows, lower mortality rate. So the cow well-being actually also improves quite a bit. But, you know, it shouldn't come as a surprise. Cows were evolved for certain lifestyle during millions of years. And for the past uh, <laughs> few millennia, we are using them uh, in a different way than evolution intended. So uh, small water that they are not functioning in the best way they can. This is why providing the efficient feed additive, the right feed additive, uh, can actually improve it quite a bit. Now, I like this, what you mentioned here. It also makes the cows happier, have a healthier, longer, hopefully more fulfilling to the extent we can understand that live. <laughs> yes. When I think about cows and meat from cows or beef generally, there is a notion of grass-fed or pasture-raised and so forth. And then there is raised with often corn or other meals that are prepared for the cows that are sometimes cheaper to prepare, right? Does your technology apply to both types of farming? It's a great question, and the answer is yes. And the reason is that we don't change the actual diet of the cows, but rather we provide the optimal feed additive. There is a variety of feed additives available today in the market. Some are based on um, citrus extract, some are based on oregano or garlic or, uh, you know, seaweed. And those additives are often given in a very small quantity. Uh, sometimes it's even just one gram per cow per day. So the cows have their diet. They can be grass-fed. They can be fed in corn or grain or whatever the farmers grow in their fields. And these additives are being given as an add-on. And also cows that are in the pasture can also be given additives that are administered in the form of boluses. These are chunks that are uh, being fed to the cow once every couple of weeks. So even pasture cows can be given those additives. And again, uh, you need to provide the right additive because if you just provide 
some arbitrary additive, most chances that uh, you would get an inferior efficacy, uh, if not zero efficacy at all. So this is in fact what we do. We help farmers find the right additive for their herd at every point in time. Yanni, if you actually come from an AI background and everything you've described so far, at least on the surface, sounds like biology and chemistry. And I'm sure there is some biology and chemistry involved. There must be. <laughs> but your background is in AI. How do you apply AI here? Does it even matter? Or did you just switch and thought this was more important than working on AI? Well, this is actually a great example of applicability of AI. My background, my PhD was uh, on swarm intelligence. And, and swarm intelligence is basically the theory of very large dynamic systems uh, with lots of noise and lots of data that is um, constantly changing. And in such systems, you have to develop dedicated mathematical techniques in order to be able to predict them and uh, design them. Let's give an example. Imagine you have uh, someone who got lost in the forest and uh, you want to find them uh, and you have 500 drones. And the drones are very simple. They have a very low range communication and uh, also very limited sensors. And uh, you don't really care which drone would find this specific individual. What you care about is that they will be rescued. And you can also assume that some drones would malfunction. And if you really want to take it to the next level, let's also assume that some would go rogue. Uh, <laughs> but still, you want to make sure that this swarm will be able to fulfill its, uh, its mission as fast as possible and with as little drones as required in order to save on costs. So this is a good example of a swarm, how to design such a system, how to analyze its performance. And in fact, I, I actually published a book dedicated solely to this. It's the cookbook of designing a swarm of drones. And by the way, uh, if you want to just get a sense of how fast science is progressing, when I did my PhD 15 years ago, uh, it was very difficult getting those papers published because it's the theory of you know, thousands of drones working together. I, I, I got this feedback. Who cares? I mean, who would ever have thousands of swarms so of drones? Sorry. And then ten years later, uh, I was contacted by um, by a scientific publisher, Springer, and they asked if they can publish my PhD as a book because suddenly it became you know, well, swarm of drones. Of course, this is the future uh, in just a decade. So this is an example. And then when I uh, did my postdoc at MIT, what we realized is that the same paradigm can be used to a great variety of other uh, uh, domains and fields. Um, for example, uh, transportation. I spent two months in Singapore uh, working um, uh, in a very fascinating uh, joint uh, project by the Singapore uh, government and MIT, uh, where we had access to uh, all the sensors embedded in the roads in Singapore and to the taxi uh, rides. And the goal was to predict anomalous disruptions in traffic. And you may say, well, you know, let's use some transportation model. There are such models from the 70s. But in reality, if you really want to be able to cope with anomalies, you should take a purely data-driven approach. Assume you know nothing about transportation. Assume that the only thing you care about are objects, their interactions, KPIs, information, let's think it in, in information. And when you do that, then you can actually develop robust uh, analytics that can even outperform 
dedicated models. Let me give another example before we go back to the cow burps. Financial systems. Uh, still at MIT, we worked with DARPA and uh, we were given billions of encrypted credit card records. And DARPA, the Ministry of Defense, wanted to predict civil unrest and violent riots. And, you know, if you have the data, maybe you can try and look for people who are buying, you know, hoarding mineral water or buying weapons. But if the data is encrypted, what can you do? Again, if you just take a purely data-driven approach, you look for patterns in the data without knowing what they represent. Encrypted transaction without knowing who is room, without knowing what they actually purchase. If you find correlations and patterns and you can associate them with previous events of the kinds that you're looking for, we demonstrated that you can actually predict such uh, events. Now, going back to the to the burps and the cows, the way we predict it is by taking microbiome samples. We take uh, small samples of the microbe that live inside the cow's rumen, and this is a routine procedure. It can be done on site by the farmers or the veterinarians, and it's just a handful of cows, 15 cows from the herd. You don't need to take, you know, large number of cows. And we send it to genetic sequencing and we operate on the data that is the genetic data that is derived from this uh, sequencing. Now, the state of the art research in this field assumes that you're taking this data and you're trying to reconstruct the microbes and you're looking for microbes that you are familiar with microbes that you know produce methane. But the problem is that this approach is very limited. It looks just at what we already know. So it's the known knowns. And sometimes 90% of the information of the raw data gets thrown away because, again, we're looking for the genes or the microbes that, that scientific literature was already familiar with. And actually, the most interesting information is found in the long tail all these exotic microbes, mutations, microbes that may be familiar to the, the literature, but may be found just in small quantity in the cow. So they would not appear in the analysis of the state-of-the-art techniques. So what we do is take, again, a purely data-driven approach. We look at the raw data. We look at raw segments of uh, nucleotides, and we detect patterns and associate them with which additive would work and which additive would not. So in this sense, the same techniques that we applied over the past uh, decade to homeland security, to cybersecurity, to financial system, to transportation, now we're applying it to, we can call it microbe intelligence, uh, <laughs> analyzing genetic material in microbes and being able to detect patterns and correlations that are indetectable otherwise. Well, sorry, it came up as a very long answer, but... Uh... <laughs> hey, I love it. This, it's a great story and even, and it's a big part of what I personally like about science is that often you can work on something that is so fundamental that the progress you make has impact across so many fields that are seemingly not related at all. And in your case, you know, credit card transaction, looking for you know civil unrest that might emerge, all the way to microbiome analysis. Now... When you do this, a lot of AI is driven by both the way you analyze it, but also data itself, of course. Do you reference the literature still, or are you able to do this with just the data you collect yourself? And then do you need data of 
maybe the amount of emission? Like, do, do you need some kind of output rather than just an, an input in this model? Again, great question. And we have actually spent the last year building the world's largest data that contains sequenced microbiome of cows and direct measurement of methane emission. We worked with 20 farms, and in each farm, we had a group of uh, several dozen cows who were given a treatment for each different additive, as well as a control group. And we literally had a team walk up at 4 a.m., took this very accurate methane detector, went to the farm and measured the methane emission from each of the cows on a weekly basis. So for several months, yeah, each of these cows were measured and this sensor basically sniffs the burps of the cows. Uh (laughs) It it, it looks as funny as it sounds and uh, it doesn't touch the cows. So the cows are not uh, bothered by it, but it, it senses... Uh, it sniffs the airs and it takes a reading every two seconds, sends it to the cloud. And then we have a very detailed, rich data set that we can then use in order to analyze the methane emission of the groups. And we can then see if the additive actually worked or not. We can normalize it by the control group because sometimes the weather change changes and then uh, all the cows emit a lot of methane because uh-huh. it's suddenly much hot, much hotter. But um, when we normalize by the control group, we can see if the additive still had an effect or not. So yeah, we had to collect this data so we can train the system. But now that we have the data, we are, um, by the way, going to um, to publish all of it and also make, uh, make it uh, accessible uh, online for researchers who would like to study. Now we can actually show that the technique can actually work by predicting the future efficacy of the additive. When I think about these additives, what should I think of? Is there maybe like five different additives that you mix in different proportions? Or is there just such a super wide spectrum of things that it's almost infinite of things that you could decide to to synthesize? So as I said, we work with the commercially available products. And uh, yeah, we, we've experimented with five different additives, each taking a completely different biochemical uh, pathway. And we can very easily onboard new additives. We actually do it even now as we speak. We're experimenting with three other new additives that uh, we basically train our system to also be able to predict. And to your other question, currently we do just a prediction for each additive regarding its specific efficacy. Is it going to work or not? Because the, the data is so scarce that it's better to do it this way from a a statistical significance uh, point of view. However, in the future, what we intend to do is also to offer mix, a mix of uh, additives, and also show that it can uh, produce a much higher uh, reduction. I can give you uh, an example so the numbers would be clear. There is a leading additive that uh, is uh, widely used uh, in the US that is known to reduce 8% of the methane and also slightly increase the milk yield. However, when we tested it in a variety of farms, what we've noticed is that in about one third of the farms, this additive had almost no effect at all. So one out of three farmers who would use it would basically be throwing their money away. Not only this, they would become very frustrated and would likely not (laughs) be interested in using this additive or any other additive in the future. Whereas what I didn't mention before is that 
the microbiome of cows constantly changes. It reacts to pathogens, to changes in the weather, to changes in the diet. So it can very well be that this specific farmer for which this additive did not work, maybe in three or four months time, this additive would actually work great. But we would never know because after a few months of, of zero efficacy, they would probably stop using it. So this is one, one quarter, one cohort. However, there was also another third of the farms for which the uh, efficacy was, was uh, double. We even had a few farms that uh, reduced 20% in their methane emission. So imagine if you knew in advance which those farms are going to be. Imagine that you are the regulator, uh, USDA, for example, and you would be able to uh, offer subsidies for these specific farms because you know that, that you're going to significantly increase yield and reduce methane. Imagine that you are a cooperative and uh, we are working with the, the U.S. largest cooperative, dairy cooperative, and the cooperative should be providing value to the farmers. So again, by adopting our technology, they would be able to prevent farmers from losing their money when these additives are not going to work and gaining a boost in the efficacy when uh, we predict that it's going to work well. And by the way, this is actually also in the best interest of the feed manufacturers themselves because they want they don't want a customer that uses only once and become frustrated. They actually want to direct their marketing resources and attention to the farms for which it is likely to produce a very high uh, impact. So again, everybody's incentives are aligned, which is what's so great about it. It's a non-zero-sum game. We use the microbiome in order to basically win against inefficiency. Now, this all really resonates. I have many follow-up questions. First one is, am I correct in understanding that the prediction problem you are solving is, given the microbiome sequencing data and given a particular supplement, will it reduce methane emissions and by how much? Is that right? Exactly, for this specific point in time, because in three months' time, the microbiome sampling of cows from this specific herd may look completely different. And that brings me to the other question that's been on my mind for a while now, is you always talk about the herd, the entire farm. You have 12 representative cows, let's say, that you measure on, and you then seem to apply it to all of them. How do you know that they all have effectively the same microbiome? Mm -hmm. Why is that? Yeah, it's a great question again. There is a very strong homogeneity of the microbiome within cows of the same herd. They eat from the same uh, place. They lick each other. They're not so hygienic. And by the way, even people who live in the same house share similar exotic microbes. And we are much more hygienic uh, than cows. So yes, there is a very strong homogeneity within the herd and a very strong heterogeneity between different herds. And by the way, just to validate it, when we conducted uh, our trials, the microbiome that we took came from cows that were completely different cows than the ones whose methane emissions were measured. So you take microbiome from a certain group of uh, cows and uh, yeah, it's valid for prediction of the efficacy for the, the entire herd. I mean, everything is statistical, right? I mean, there may be one cow who would still produce lots and lots of methane, but statistically speaking, uh, it's, it's of a very strong uh, prediction uh, power. Now, one thing, Yaniv, I found very intriguing, if I heard it correctly, you're going to publish the data, the findings, 
I mean, this is something you worked on for a long time, a lot of effort, investment went into it, going to publish it. Um, how do you keep an advantage as a company? How do you, Meta, as a company, I can see how that helps, but how do you as a company make sure you're also doing well? Yeah, well, first, everything that uh, we're going to publish uh, is also covered by patents that are filed beforehand. And secondly, the reason that we publish, first, we believe it's the right thing to do. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you want your reputation to be as best as possible. And uh, in this specific field, we, you know, we claim to reduce that. And so it's, I think, in our best interest that all the data will be out there, publicly available for further analysis. I think it actually serves us well. But you mentioned before carbon credits and carbon uh, taxation. And in order to be able to claim a higher, it's called ERF, Emission Reduction Factor, it's basically a license to issue carbon credits at a much higher throughput than, uh, than other approaches and, and techniques can do. In order to, to claim this, the leading carbon agencies, uh, specifically VERA, uh, requires you to publish uh, your technique in a peer-reviewed uh, scientific journal, I get because you know this uh, field can benefit from any rigorousness and any clarity and you know uh, data availability as possible. So this is what they require, and I can see the logic. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to publish it and also make it accessible uh, at MIT. By the way, as long as we're mentioning this, uh, we're now discussing uh, a significant collaboration with the Dairy Farmers of America. It's the U.S.'s largest cooperative. And one thing that we are uh, negotiating with them is uh, a funding that would allow us to set a small um, research activity joint uh, to MIT and the Dairy Farmers of America, where uh, the microbiome data would uh, become available to researchers who are interested in, in other topics, not just methane reduction, susceptibility to disease, various other kinds of um, additions or uh, you know, optimizations that can be done and at the end of the day, we're talking about microbes. It's not specific to methane. It's not even specific to cows. These are microbes. And they share genes with other microbes <laughs> that may be human microbes or, you know, soil microbes. So I believe that we can lead to a much larger breakthrough here. Uh, of course, as a startup company, we have to focus on one thing and do only this and do it well. But, you know, if we can help the scientific community, why not? That's beautiful. And I mean, there's a lot going on in the microbiome space in the last few years. And uh, yeah, it sounds like the opportunities are tremendous. You mentioned humans as, you know, maybe in the future, some of your studies could improve supplements for humans so they get better microbiomes. That's something that's already on your mind. I realize you're right now as a company focused on dairy farmers and, and cow farmers generally. And, but in your mind, do you have a vision for what it could do for humans? At the end of the day, what we produce is microbiomarkers. So it's like a biomarker, but not from the, the DNA of the cow or the human, but from the DNA of the microbiome. So biomarkers are often used uh, in, in human medicine, deciding which specific treatment to give uh, in oncology, uh, patient selections, in clinical trials, it's of great use. And, and we're actually already working. This is my MIT uh, hat speaking now. Uh, already for the past uh, couple of years, I've been in discussions with researchers 
in specifically this field. So I'm aware of the contribution that a new technique in the development of, uh, of biomarker from microbiome can produce. It would be great to see this happening, of course, as long as, you know, it's something that doesn't stand in the way of uh, what we as a company should be focused on, which is, uh, you know, <laughs> doing what we are intended to do, which is increasing yield, reducing methane emission, uh, and creating a business out of it. Is it fair to say you're open for business? If there are farmers out there that want to benefit from this, they can reach out to you and, and they can get going? Yeah, of course. Just a couple of months ago, I was in uh, Nashville, where I attended the annual gathering of the Young Farmers of America. And I met farmers who are seeking innovation. It was great to speak with them. We actually had a focus group where about 20 farmers, some of them from huge herds, herds that, uh, you know, 4,000, 20,000 cows, huge herds, herds attended the, uh, our focus group. And basically what I told them was very simple. Some of you already have budgets in place for additives. And working with us, we can optimize your use of additives. After you pay us our fee, I can show you the numbers. You would still be making so much more milk that you cover what you pay us and much more. But not only this, we also create a completely new revenue stream for you because your cow's burps are actually an asset that you just throw away. Let us help you monetize this asset. There are entities, companies who would love to pay you for reducing your uh, cow's burps. So let us help you monetize it. We'll take our fee and uh, suddenly you have a completely new revenue stream in addition to the increase in yield. So we already are uh, discussing with some of those farms and we're actively looking for a uh, for more farmers who are interested uh, to join our journey. So yeah, by all means. Another thing on my mind, Yaniv, is that methane, as I understand it, is the gas that powers gas stoves and central air heating systems in many places in the US and probably other places in the world. It seems like an alternative would be to try to capture the methane and sell the methane. Say like, okay, the cows produce milk, but also produce methane and we sell the methane. Is, is that just not reasonable to do? Is it just not the most effective use of the methane? What's the reasoning to go one way or the other? So the cow actually produces methane from both ends. From the rear end, you can actually capture it. And many farmers uh, actually do just that. They sign the long-term uh, agreements with energy manufacturers who harvest the, the cows and dogs and then produce um, methane from it and use it to power turbines. So yeah, unfortunately, this end of the cow produces about 17% of the methane. Most of the methane is being released from the front in the form of burps. So now you have the problem of what you are, you know, what, what are you doing with this methane? It's actually similar to flaring in oil rigs in the deep sea. You often see this flare, which is, again, the methane that uh, would be too expensive to ship back to land. So they either release it to the atmosphere or they burn it. So they prefer to burn it because it's uh, less polluting. You turn it to carbon dioxide, uh, which is much less potent than the methane. Unfortunately, you cannot do it with the cows. Although I imagine that it would be probably amusing <laughs> to see the cows. It's like they become dragons. 
you would like their burps on fire, but I don't think that it would be feasible. And I also don't think that the cow would appreciate it. So you have to somehow trim it in source, prevent it from being produced. Got it. Let's take a step back. You've done a lot in your career. Meta AI is your, your latest company, super exciting. But you've done many things before. When did your interest in artificial intelligence start? I would say that, uh, you know, I've been doing it for the past 20 years, starting in my bachelor uh, degree and then uh, throughout my uh, PhD and postdoc at MIT. It fascinated me from the very beginning. I also worked during my PhD, I worked at the um, IBM uh, machine learning research group. So uh, I always uh, kept in touch with the AI and machine learning both from the academic aspect as well as from the more, uh, you know, industrial uh, side. I was always a great believer in AI, although I have to say <laughs> that I never <laughs> predicted we would see something like uh, you know, GPT-4 so soon. So those of us who are believers in singularity theory and have read Ray Kurzweil's books uh, know that you have to think in terms of exponential changes. And most people find it very difficult to think in terms of exponential changes. And we, the scientists uh, with the PhDs, always tell ourselves, oh, yeah, 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 we are different. We understand what an exponent is. We can understand what exponential, exponential changes mean. And still, I think it caught us by, or most of us, at least me, <laughs> by surprise, the velocity of change, the, the rapid pace that uh, AI has been accelerating over the past uh, year was you know, as exciting as it was surprising and a little bit uh, intimidating. So, so yeah, but, but still, I think it's more exciting than intimidating. So I am looking forward to see what the future holds. And uh, you know, I'm going to do my best to help continue promote this uh, field and try to make it not, not just stronger and more potent, but also uh, you know, as ethical uh, as possible. One thing you mentioned there was the large language models doing so well as of recently, right? These models are next token prediction models. In principle, you could train such models on your data too. You have sequences, you could train a next token prediction model, hopefully from that learn embedding spaces or something similar from which you might be able to extract interesting things that just from pure supervised learning might not be enough and, and combine it with this unsurprised next token prediction task. What do you think? You have a data problem here. There are attempts to take genetic information from microbes and ignore the semantics. Basically, what's the state of the art is dividing it to K-mers. For example, a six-mer a six would be a sequence of uh, six basis. And uh, then uh, let's look at all the possible uh, six mirrors, uh, look at the, their distribution, and so on. The problem is, uh, you know, just run, run the combinatorical equations in your head and see that it explodes very fast. Uh, you have to stop at around six, because then the number of features or the number of tokens uh, becomes so large that you simply don't have enough data. Even if you take the 
uh, Human Microbiome Project, which is the largest study of, uh, of microbiome to date. And, and I actually downloaded all of it through MIT. I actually have it uh, <laughs> accessible on my laptop. Take all this data. It's, you know, tiny compared to what you need in order to take this approach. So uh, large language models are available today because companies like Google, Microsoft, and others have access to the tremendous amount of uh, textual information that is available today on the web. And what we have in the microbiome is uh, tiny, tiny, tiny fractures, orders of magnitude smaller than what would be required. So this approach would actually not work. In addition, it would just predict the next token, which is not necessarily what you want. Uh, what you're interested in is not let's predict the next token in the DNA, but what does it actually mean? Is this sequence of DNA associated with this property or not? And on top of this, this is not exactly how microbiome sampling works. It's not that you get this string of, uh, of DNA material. What you get is they take the microbiome sample and then uh, they, they shatter it both mechanically and with enzymes. It's called the shotgun sequencing. You get this, uh, eventually, you get this soup of between 100 and 150 long strings and you don't know where, which came from which microbe. So um, even if you try to predict the next token, you would only be limited to these 100 to 150 long strings. So this would be the limitation on your prompt, so to speak. So many, many problems in, in applying this approach to genetic uh, information today from microbiome. Yeah, many challenges. It does seem like the biggest challenge is the amount of data, the way the data is collected. Um, I do agree that it's not enough to predict the next token in the sequence in text. That's often the only thing you need to do. That's the response. But that seems less of an issue because you might still learn a great representation that can be used to more efficiently than learn the thing you care about, the function and so forth. But the amount of data se seems like it's, it's a real bottleneck right now. Also, the quality of the data seems, seems limited with that shotgun approach. It, it seems to really limit. It puts noise in your data effectively, it seems. Shortening the sequences. It's like you take the internet... And instead of training a large language model on internet text, you, you parcel it up in small pieces and then train it, then you never get long context windows. And that the long context windows, at least in language models, are what give you often the magical effects of you know, really understanding what's going to come next because you look at the past thousand tokens, but if you shotgun approach it, you're not going to get any of that. So it seems like the, the measurement, the data collection might need to change and or drastically scale up to, to get the same opportunity. Yes, or you use a different approach, which is what we do, that is just taking those bits and bits of information and looking for correlations among them. Function, a small functional units that appear together in a way that we can mathematically prove to be too coincidental. And because you do it all analytically, suddenly you can do things that are uh, unimaginable if you just do it in a robust LLM-style um, uh, manner. Mm -hmm. You mentioned your AI journey started in your undergraduate, through PhD, and through now. But what we haven't talked about is that you actually started two other companies in that process. You started 
Memories in 2007, you started Endor in 2014, before then now recently starting Meta AI in 2022. Let's start with Memories, 2007. I mean, to me, it's amazing because back when I was working in AI, back in those days, I was like, man, this thing doesn't work yet. Uh, it seems like it's still an academic effort, but you found a way to start a company that is actually doing something with AI in real world and games in 2007. What uh, what were you doing and how do you decide to do it? Yeah, in retrospect, uh, <laughs> I think the story is a bit uh, exotic, uh, to say the least. I was in my uh, grad school studies working on my, uh, my PhD and I had this childhood friend who was very much into gaming. He was actually the head of the National Association of Game Developers. And when we were kids, we used to play first-person shooters. And I think that I'm dating myself now, but I'm from uh, the journey and from the, the duration. We used to play Doom 2 and Quake and Counter-Strike Source. So, um, and, you know, and so my friend was telling me, you know, these are great games, but it seems that something is missing. I mean, we spend so much time playing these and sometimes there is this moment that I want to, to capture this great achievement that I want to, you know, record. And yeah, I know that I can install this piece of software that would record whatever I'm seeing. But first of all, not so practical. Second, it sounds, you know, pretty dumb that I need to do it manually. Can there be something that would do it for me? Something that would identify highlights? Now, I know that what I'm describing now exist in the 2023, but uh, in 2007, it was uh, considered a bit of a science fiction. So what we've done was we started a company and developed a software tool that can integrate in game engines, can take the raw data from inside the engine itself and use uh, behavioral analytics and AI in order to detect highlights detect moments that we trained it to recognize that uh, that gamers would uh, uh, flag as highlights. And we then started to sign agreements with server operators. And we actually got it installed on more than half of the servers of Counter-Strike globally. And wow. uh, <laughs> yeah, again, imagine us two grad school students self-funding this with a little bit of government support and a little bit of angel investing, got it to, to be installed on half of the world's Counter-Strike servers. And we didn't have Amazon Cloud, so we had to build our own small server farm to render, render all of these moments back into video, uh, which caused all kinds of interesting challenges. For example, the apartment that we rented became super hot. <laughs> so just our, you know, electricity bill for the, the AC was uh, a major component of our <laughs> burn. And I remember that we, we bought like eight huge fans and the entire apartment was the wind, the wind uh, from this <laughs> fan just to cool, to cool the, the, lab, the, the computers that we stacked to render these events and then upload them back to YouTube and send the link directly to the game. So you as a, as, a, as a gamer would be sent a link directly to the game telling you that somebody who just shot you 
wanted you to see it from his point of view and we rented <laughs> actors and all of this thing was was happening uh, automatically it was it was uh, uh, amazing because we we actually liked using it we were users who developed this uh, product uh, and we actually signed commercial contracts uh, with um, this small uh, MMORPG <laughs> from Korea and then we suddenly got approached by EA so electronic arts nice. uh, yeah is contacted us asking if we want to deploy this new technology in one of their games. I think it was Battlefield Heroes. So we were all so excited. But uh, then we got hit by the you know, 2008 crisis. You could not raise. And we were this crappy business working from this super hot and windy apartment to begin with. <laughs> so eventually, <laughs> yeah, we had to shut down uh, the operation. Did you put it all in open source somewhere just in case somebody wanted to to still play with it? Yeah, it, it was actually part of the source uh, engine. I don't know if, if people are using it now, but yeah, in theory, they could. And yeah, we were actually self-funded the last year, you know, because you have to have skin in the game and you have to put your money where your mouth is. I still believe it that to be the case uh, until we ran out of funds. So <laughs> we went back to school. <laughs> back to school yeah to finish the phd for me and my friend Tick took a, a different path but also yeah to pursue his previous uh desires but then from finishing your phd you ended up doing a postdoc at mit and then you have a spin-off from what you were doing there Endor. what what is the product Endor was building at the time where is it now and I think it's worth highlighting, it was backed by Eric Schmidt, former Google CEO, so quite quite a big name to get funding from as you spin a company out of a university. Mm-hmm. Yes. Endor was basically the commercialization of uh, what we developed during my postdoc. Everything I described before, the ability to work on intelligence and data and, uh, and predict uh, riots and, and other things, to work on financial information, uh, we decided to commercialize it. We signed an agreement with MIT, so we had exclusive license to all the technology. And we built a product that it was intended to take this set of tools and algorithms that throughout my postdoc were implemented on a case-by-case basis and required me or uh, the researchers who were working me- with me in order to, you know, to, to basically uh, get it to work. So turn it into a product. We took it halfway, I would say. It was this product that required a heavy high-touch support and a very strong uh, last mile data-wise effort, but it worked. It worked in the sense that we use it to help MasterCard and its affiliates worldwide optimize their marketing campaigns actually getting uh, tripling, tripling the, the amount of uh, conversions. Uh, yeah, and uh, we worked with the leadership of Coca-Cola and Walmart. We worked with uh, several uh, ministries of defense in the US, uh, other places, because uh, again, it was this you know magic machine, so to speak, that you install on a very, very strong server or uh, online if the data is uh, unclassified. And you can suddenly solve 
the hardest problems for your customers. Yeah, we were, I think we could have eventually transformed it into this automatic product, I believe. But then uh, we got hit by COVID. I don't want it to sound as an excuse, but we had uh, significant commercial agreements already in place. Uh, and suddenly the, the whole world got uh, shut down and, um, you know, who knows when it's going to, to go back. So we tried to continue and, and see what's going on, but eventually agreed with uh, the investors to, to just unwind uh, the company. Yeah, I hope that at least the technologies we develop there and our work with our customers maybe have helped our partners to, to improve their ability to, to analyze data or to understand data. I love the story, Siri, and even how openly you're sharing like your, your personal path here. I'm curious, when, when you reflect on your three entrepreneurship journeys so far, do you have any advice for people who are thinking of starting their own company? What are some things that you think are important to keep in mind or to look for or to maybe huh, take pause or really jump on something because it's the right opportunity? Well, you know, my main lesson from Andor is that uh, generic machine learning is very difficult if it's impossible uh, at all. You have to pick one use case. You have to know exactly what you're doing, A to Z. You have to understand everything from the first initial discussion with the customer to the uh, retention and customer success and to make sure that it's uh, repetitive and uh, replicable. So one use case, do it right, get it done, scale. And I, I have another uh, funny story for you. I have met uh, um, when we just started Endor, I met with uh, Joe Lonsdale from, uh, you know, uh, among others, Palantir. And we discussed technology and science uh, and, and he's a bright uh, individual. It's uh, really fun speaking with him. And uh, at one point he said, well, you know, I'm now investing in many other things and I have my funds. And after Palantir, my investors, my LPs basically allow me to do anything I want, except for one thing. I cannot invest in generic machine learning. <laughs> other than that, everything goes. And um, yeah, it took us a few years to understand why he said uh, what he said. Uh, and to, uh, to understand this lesson of uh, focus on one single uh, use case. Uh, but regarding memories in a different life, it could have been, uh, you know, a, a huge success because we were actually already there. <laughs> we were already generating a little bit of revenues, uh, got approached by EA uh, to um, basically implement it as part of, uh, of their leading game. So, you know, in a different life, maybe I uh, uh, would have had a nice exit during my PhD, but I'm happy with where I am. Yeah, I mean, for memories, the way I would look at it then, if I can play that back a little bit, is that the macro and macro conditions can really also affect the trajectory of a company. In that case, the banking crisis in 2008 affected many companies, including memories. And so mac macro is, is, is there, sometimes gets you or sometimes helps you, right? It's interesting. Now... Clearly, Anif, you've been keeping very busy. Do you ever get time to just unwind, relax, and what do you do? Well, you know, as a founder and CEO, most of uh, my time uh, is uh, dedicated to uh, to the business, uh, of course. 
Uh, however, uh, you know, when I do have some uh, some free time, um, uh, I really believe that it's important to spend it with the family. So uh, wife and kids, you know, they grow up so fast. And uh, it's uh, basically the most important thing you have in life. So it's important to make sure that uh, that you do find the times for this. And when I have some times in between, like in airports and during flights where, <laughs> you know, maybe I'm, okay, finished my chores and uh, I need to, uh, to unwind and do something else. Uh, of course, I, I, I love reading the, the latest and greatest in AI because there are so many interesting things that come up every week. And I also uh, love uh, keeping in touch with the developments in uh, crypto, specifically Bitcoin. So I discovered Bitcoin back at MIT 2012. I think that makes me a little bit of an OG. Um, okay. So yeah, I, I discovered the technology and I was amazed uh, came back uh, home and, and people said that I was blockchainized because I became this you know, Jehovah Witness telling everybody, this is the future, this is the future. Put all of your life savings into Bitcoin. And um, uh, so, you know, reading about it, um, listening to Michael Saylor's uh, discussions and, and chats is always fascinating. Not so often. You see someone who was at MIT, was supposed to be an astronaut until they found, you know, I think if I remember correctly, something in his heart, I think, started two companies, two, two billion dollar companies, and then discovered Bitcoin, went all in, and then started Sailor Academy, decided to give everything, like give the best education for free <laughs> to everyone in the world. Yeah, so Michael Sailor's stuff is something that always uh, gets me going. It's always a pleasure to listen to. Uh, yeah, Th that's it. I don't have more time. And I like to, yeah, I like to run and do CrossFit uh, because it, uh, it basically, but this it's, it's a trick to get you going and do more work. It's important to, to take these short exercising intermissions. Well, Yanev, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for making the time. Sure, thank you. I enjoyed it as well.